This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. It's Tuesday. How are you, Daphne? You're excited for Tuesday. I had drank a lot of coffee. <laughs> how many how many cups of coffee do you drink every day on a well, on a regular day? On a regular day. on a regular day, about four. Mm-hmm. Which, but they're big cups, <laughs> and they're very strong. Meaning, I don't um, I don't have. I know a ma- you don't. You drink black coffee. I drink black coffee. I you ha- I do have a machine at home when I'm too lazy to make my own coffee, but otherwise I I make my own coffee. And um, yeah, the caffeine load is like I'm on the high dose of caffeine. <laughs> if right. I were a preemie, I would be on a, per 10, kilo. on a ten meg per kilo uh, maintenance dose. That's funny. Um, yeah, you know I like my coffee, but it's I drink a coffee like a like a child. No. Yeah, for the people who don't know, I started drinking coffee uh, in Europe. I started drinking coffee at the age of mm-hmm. eleven, I think, mm-hmm. um, and that w- that was because my dad used to go to like the cafe in the morning, and I wanted to go with him, and there was nothing there for me to drink or anything. Yeah. So I said, "All right, like make me a coffee." And <laughs> and in the beginning, it was tough, and then afterwards, it was it was great. Um, thank you, everybody who is. Listening to the podcast, we are baffled by the momentum of mm-hmm. the community that's growing in and around the podcast. As we said yesterday on the show, um, we are opening our current podcast to our community. If you have a topic that you want to present, if you identify, like if you've got, if you've gathered the structure of our new podcast well enough and you say hey i want to present the history of this topic like i don't mm-hmm. want to do the whole week i just want to do one day like please we'll make that happen um that's going to be fun it's fun for us it's fun for you guys and it ex- gives a chance i think right it's like if you get the opportunity yeah. to present grand rounds at your institution you feel excited yeah. terrified yeah. but excited totally and, agree um and this is going to be fun. So just feel free to reach out to us. Um, it's no pressure. Like this is going to keep going no matter what. But um, this is a, a cool opportunity. Okay. So we're talking about red blood cell transfusion. Yesterday, we talked about some of the history of the, the of transfusion medicine and neonatology. And today, we're talking about the transfusion trials. I think this is like super valuable, especially, you know, as a trainee, I was at an institution where there are very different thoughts about <laughs> blood transfusions. Yeah. But now you can say we reviewed the trials. So <laughs> that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. Um there is no consensus around transfusion practices in neonatology. And you will see why when we review these trials. Um so yeah, I mean my wife is a cardiologist. It's kind of neat. It's such a it's such a dense field. Like she can pull out a consensus guideline on pretty mm-hmm. much any topic, mm-hmm. right? This is something we clearly don't have. And the reason being that studying anything in preterm infants is, is a nightmare. Um, <laughs> so, so, so we'll see. So, so yesterday we left off um, discussing the trial out of the University of Iowa and how different transfusion thresholds were not completely equal and how um, 
trying to uh, use a, a lower hemoglobin threshold for transfusion really was associated with poor uh, neurodevelopmental outcomes. Uh, and that was the um, that was the Iowa trials. I mean, um, I, I'm, when I mean neurodevelopmental outcome, I mean the the, the severe IVH or PVL right. as we discussed yesterday. Go listen to the podcast. Um, uh, so today we are going to follow up on three trials that that were published after this initial trial from Iowa. And the first trial we're going to talk about is the PINT trial. The PINT stands for the Premature Infant in Need of Transfusions. And this trial was published in 2006 in the Journal of Pediatrics. The PINT study group really involved 10 centers from Canada, the US, and Australia. The background of that Original paper goes over a lot of things that we've already discussed yesterday. I'm not going to bother you with the details, but this was a randomized control trial where extremely low birth weight infants were randomly assigned to either a restrictive or liberal hemoglobin threshold. Just for the people who have trouble like me, a restrictive uh, threshold means that you're using a much lower uh, hemoglobin threshold. Restrictive meaning you're, you're being very restrictive in the number of transfusions you're going to give. Liberal means that the hemoglobin is higher, which means you give transfusion willy nilly. All right, mm-hmm. this is an oversimplification, but this willy is willy nilly. <laughs> Listen, you want to know? Like this is board review. Liberal, willy nilly, lots of L's. That's how I remember it. <laughs> All right. Okay. Yeah. So the primary outcome of the Pine trial was a com- composite of either death before home discharge or survival with severe morbidity. Severe morbidity was defined as having one or more of either ROP, BPD, or brain injury on cranial ultrasound. Pre-specified secondary outcomes included hemoglobin level, number of PRBC transfusions, number of donor exposures, rate of growth, serum ferritin change, and um, from early in their course to discharge values. Other recorded outcomes included the number of infants with neck or with apnea requiring treatment, the use of caffeine, doxapram, culture-proven infections, um, or the requirement for postnatal steroids. They also recorded time in uh, oxygen, time in to extubation, and time to discharge. So they included uh, infants who were eligible if they were less than 1,000 grams at birth with the gestational age below 31 weeks at birth, and they had to be... 48 hours old at the time of enrollment. Um, um, The exclusion criteria, um, so the infants that were excluded were the ones who were deemed non-viable by the attending physician, as uh, also were those with cyanotic heart disease, congenital anemia, acute shock, kids who had received transfusion after six hours of age, or known parental opposition to transfusion, family history of anemia or hem- and hemolytic disease, or where the attending physician anticipated the use of erythropoietin. So the way they categorized who was going to get to transfusion when was actually um, a little bit similar to what the Iowa group did, but it in- introduced something new, which was in addition to how old the patient was, they were also mm-hmm. looking at how sick was the baby. And this illness severity uh, combined with the age of the patient really is something that's quite novel that the PINE trial is starting. So they gave, they gave their um, threshold as 
hemoglobin, but I'm going to use hematocrit because so that we're consistent throughout the episode. Their definition of sick versus not sick was based on one parameter. Is the baby on respiratory support? So if you were on respiratory support, any respiratory support, you were sick. If you were on no respiratory support, you were not sick. They treat infused infants when the hematocrit reach, reached or fell below the pre-specified level and all transfusion were 15 ml per kilo. And so for the PINE trial, you had week one, if you were if you were in the in the in the high threshold group, the hematocrit was 40 when you were sick, 35 when you were not sick. And the low hematocrit group, it was 34 if you were sick and 29 when you were not sick. During week two, the if you the high threshold was 35 when you were sick and 29 when you were not sick, uh, 29 when you were in the low group and sick, and not 25 when you were not sick in the low group. And finally, during week three, high group was 29 when you were sick, 25 when you were not sick, and in the low hematocrit group, it was 25 when you were sick and 22 when you're not sick. We're going to post this table. <coughs> Our friend Keith Barrington wrote a very, very good mm -hmm. blog post on these trials. And he has a table where he has actually um, aggregated all the different hematocrit levels. And so that's super, super useful. That's the one I'm using to talk to you right now. So uh, I'll, I'll post that on the, on the website. Okay. so. 451 infants were randomized, 223 in the restrictive group, 228 in the liberal group. The groups were similar. The mean birth weight was 770 grams, and the gestational age was 26 weeks. Fewer infants received one or more transfusion in the low threshold group. That's pretty much the theme of all these trials, obviously. But the rates of the primary outcome were 74% in the low threshold group and 69.7% in the high threshold group. And that was not statistically a uh, significant difference, right? And remember that for the primary outcome, we're looking at death before discharge or survival with severe morbidity. Some concern could be sensed by uh, the fact that for brain injury, uh, that except for brain injury, all other primary outcome measure measures favored the high threshold group. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, that really now adds confusion, mm -hmm. right? Because mm -hmm. the Iowa study showed the opposite, that actually uh, brain injury was the concern. But in this case, brain injury is really not a concern. Uh, so the number of babies that survived with uh, brain injury was like 13% in the low threshold group and 16% in the high threshold group. None of that was significant, but still. Uh, and there were no statistically significant differences between the groups in any of the secondary outcomes. And so the study concludes that in extremely low birth weight infants, maintaining a higher hemoglobin level results in more infants receiving transfusion, but confers little evidence of benefit. And we're sort of starting to converge with our adult colleagues in finding out that maybe a lower hemoglobin threshold might just be fine. But now, a few years later, the Pines group publishes their neurodevelopmental outcome. So in 2009, they published, I think it was in, uh, ooh, I forgot the, the, the journal. I will just post the, the, the paper on the website. But they're following their babies at 18 to 21 months of age. And uh, they looked at the primary outcome of death or the presence of cerebral palsy, cognitive delay, or severe visual or hearing impairment. The neurodevelopmental outcomes were measured during, using the Bailey 
and uh, the rest was pretty much standard. So they were able to follow 430 infants out of the 451, and they found no statistical, no statistically significant difference in the primary outcome. They found that 45% of the 208 infants in the restrictive group and 38% in the out of the 213 in the liberal group um, had the 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 primary um, the primary composite outcome of death or presence of of, of uh, cerebral palsy, cognitive delay, or severe visual or hearing impairment. However, what they saw was that for cognitive delay. There was a significant. There was not a significant difference, but something that was close to reaching statistical significance. So, for cognitive delay, they saw that this was present in twenty four point four percent of the low hemoglobin threshold group, compared to seventeen point six percent of the high hemoglobin threshold group, with a p value of 0. 0.06. And so, they conducted a post hoc analysis with cognitive delay redefined. Uh, they used different cutoffs. They also looked at it. Uh, they also looked at it from a categorical standpoint, meaning before it was like less than seventy was considered a cognitive delay. They looked at it as a continuum, and it showed that when they redid this post hoc analysis for cognitive delay specifically, a significant difference favoring the liberal threshold group. So the babies who had a higher threshold had less cognitive delay when they looked mm -hmm. at cognitive delay in different terms. So now it's 2009 and it's a mess. Um, <laughs> nobody really has a good idea. What are we supposed to do? The short, the short term data that they published actually contradict the iOS study. The long term data seems to hint that, yeah, the brain is really an issue when you're using lower thresholds. So it's a mess. Nothing happens for 10 years. Um, nothing of real significance. And you have to wait um, until 2020 for the two largest trials to be published. Mm -hmm. And the first one we're going to talk about is the first one that was published, I think, in August of 2020. And that's the ETNO trial. The ETNO trial, ETTNO, is the effect of transfusion threshold on neurocognitive outcomes of extremely low birth weight infants. And this was a multi-center trial conducted in Europe. The premise of the study is trying to address the discrepancy in the evidence that is now accumulating. So now pediatric intensive care, adult intensive care, all are publishing data that, yeah, lower thresholds are better. And we are in neonatology stuck between the data from the PINE trial, the data from the Iowa trial, and our data doesn't align with the other specialties. And, and we still don't have a good sense as to what really um, we should be doing. And in fact, um, in 2007, so between the Pint and the Iowa, there's a New England Journal paper looking at transfusion criteria in pediatric intensive care that showed that lower transfusion thresholds were safe and did not increase adverse outcomes. So again, like I said, the data in the other specialties is, is accruing. So the question that the ethno trial group asked was, what are the effects of liberal versus restrictive uh, red blood cell transfusion strategies on survival and neurocognitive outcomes at 24 months corrected age? 36 centers in Europe were enrolled. The inclusion criteria were if you were a baby between, with a birth weight of like 400 to 999 grams, they excluded a bunch of babies. Uh, I'm not going to bother you with the details. They make sense. They're not controversial. The primary outcome of the study was the incidence of death or neurodevelopmental impairment by 24 months corrected age on the Bailey 2. 
they had a long list of secondary outcome. And the transfusion, set, the transfusion threshold were set up very similarly to the PINE trial, meaning you had to have an age category and you had a, a sickness category. And so they call them, they call those, um, those sickness category critical health state. And so in order for you to be considered in a critical state of health, you had to have at least one of the following criteria. Invasive mechanical ventilation, CPAP with an FiO2 of 25% or more for more than 12 hours in a day, you were treated for PDA, acute sepsis or neck with circulatory failure requiring presser support, or more than six nurse-documented apneas requiring intervention in 24 hours, or more than four intermittent hypoxemic episodes with pulse oximetry oxygen saturation below 60%. It's interesting because some of those are not that high acuity, right? Like 25%, right? You know, um, as compared to having, you know, so around the clock events, right? You're, you're, you're pointing at a very sensitive <laughs> yeah. subject. Keith Barrington mentions that <laughs> in, his, that's the point. <laughs> in his blog post where those sickness criteria mm -hmm. are very debatable, right? Sure. I mean, and, and how does that relate to anemia? Right. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying you could, you could have it's a, a point field, for discussion. Oh, yeah. you could have a field day arguing left and yeah. right. The study was able to enroll a thousand infants. So now we are, it's right. It's almost mm -hmm. twice the, the pint trial group. And, um, the data shows that obviously the babies in the in the liberal group got more transfusions. The primary outcome of death or neurodevelopmental impairment at 24 months of corrected age was a certain in 91.5% of patients and 91.7% of patients in liberal and restrictive groups, uh, respectively. The rates of death or neurodevelopmental impairment were 44.4% versus 43% um, and an odds ratio of 1.05% adjusted for center and birth weight stratum. So there was really no difference. In terms of the secondary outcomes, they saw no statistically significant differences between treatment groups in the rates of components of the primary outcome or incidence of cognitive deficit. The mean, uh, the MDI, the mean uh, developmental index, the PDI, the physical, the, the, the MDI is the mental developmental index. My, I'm sorry, I knew I was, I was making a mistake there. The PDI, the physical developmental index score, length of hospital stay, time intervals from birth to final discontinuation of invasive respiratory support, positive pressure respiratory support, respiratory stimulant therapy, and gavage feeding. And so the study concludes that among the infants with a birth weight of less than 1,000 gram, the strategy of liberal transfusion compared with restrictive did not reduce the likelihood of death or disability at 24 months of corrected age. And now, again, that contradicts the PINE trial. So <laughs> we have a much, la much larger study um, that, really, um, that really now seems to make a case that using a lower hemoglobin threshold is perfectly safe. Uh, for people who then were concerned, right, we were, we were looking at the Bailey 2 MDI, right? <laughs> And less than 70 was the issue in the prior study. In this case, really, it was not significant, as I mentioned, but just so you have the numbers. In the liberal transfusion, it was 19% of the kids who had an MDI less than 70 versus 16% in the restrictive group. So they did even better. So anyway, so, that's, so that sets the stage that, all right, maybe we are in the same boat as the adult specialties or the pediatric intensive care, mm -hmm. and maybe we should use lower thresholds. 
So a few months later, so I think the, the ethno trial was published in August. This one was published in December. In the New England Journal of Medicine, the results of the top trial are released. And this is basically the NICHD neonatal research network's take on the restrictive versus liberal transfusion threshold discussion. The transfusion of prematures top, right, transfusion of prematures trial, is a uh, multi-center, non-masked, randomized control trial that tested the hypothesis that a higher hemoglobin threshold for red cell transfusion, as compared with a lower threshold, would reduce the incidence of death or neurodevelopmental impairment at 22 to 26 months of age corrected for prematurity. This included even more centers, 41 NICUs, and included babies with a birth weight less than 1,000 grams and a gestational age between 22, 28, and 6, and a postnatal age of 48 hours or less. They excluded, um, I'm, I'm really extending my time here, they excluded a bunch <laughs> of babies. And the primary outcome of the study was a composite of death or neurodevelopmental impairment in these infants, uh, and neurodevelopment, neurodevelopment was measured using the Bailey. They had a long list of pre-specified outcomes. The transfusion thresholds were again set up in the exact same way. And this time um, you had the postnatal age, but you also had the level of sickness. And in this case, they didn't really call it sickness. They just called it respiratory support. So going back a little bit to the pint uh, framework where respiratory support was defined as mechanical ventilation, CPAP, uh, FiO2 greater than 35%, or delivery of oxygen or room air by nasal cannula at a flow of one liter per minute or more. The, um, let me just pull this up one second, the different hematocrit so I can give them to you. Uh, for the top trial, um, if you were in the sick group at week one, it was 38 versus 32. In the not sick group, it was 35 versus 29. At week two, in the sick group, it was 37 versus 29. 32 versus 25 in the not sick group, and in the week three, 32 versus 25 in the sick group, and 29 versus 21 in the not sick group. I think what's interesting to note is how these trials differ in the cutoff that they're using, especially between week two to week three. And mm -hmm. like some of the trials are changing their hematocrit by like two, three points, which it's kind of very close to each other, but uh, I think the top trial was the only one that had such a wide gap between the different hematocrit levels uh, throughout the different weeks. So the results uh, revealed that they were able to um, randomize 1,824 infants. So officially, this becomes the largest trial to look at this particular question. The mean birth weight was 756 gram, mean gestational age 25.9 weeks. Of those, um, they, um, they were able to actually collect data at 22 to 26 months in 93% of these infants. So they had data on almost like 1,700 babies. Um, and so they had about 900 babies in each arms in each arm of the study. Um, and of those, um, of those, in the higher threshold group, 50% died or survived with neurodevelopmental impairment as compared with 49.8% in the low threshold group. So very similar numbers. Mm -hmm. At two years, the higher and lower threshold groups had similar incidence of death and neurodevelopmental impairment. Death was 16% versus 15%. Neurodevelopmental impairment was 39.6 versus 40.3. So very, very similar. At discharge from the hospital, the incidence of survival without severe complication were 28.5% 
versus 30.9%. And serious adverse out serious adverse events occurred in 22 versus 21.7% uh, of each group. So the conclusion of the top trial is that in extremely low birth weight infants, a higher hemoglobin threshold for red cell transfusion did not improve survival without neurodevelopmental impairment at 22 to 26 months of age, corrected for prematurity. I think it's very worthwhile for people who are having ideas about implementing lower transfusion thresholds in their mm -hmm. unit that we are not talking about babies who have ongoing bleeding, obviously. Right. Um, this is a whole different ballgame. Um, and, and obviously, this is very important to, to mention. I want... I think that's such an important point, especially when you talk about compared to adult protocols, right? You know, they have different, like transfusions, for example, different, it would be different for a transplant patient than for a, you know, a trauma patient. And, and so um, we forget sometimes how different our babies are, right? I mm -hmm. mean, ELBWs versus older, EL, you know, you know, VLBWs, you know, the different, we can't, uh, put the same paradigm on all NICU infants, basically. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I want to highlight again, Keith Barrington's post, which mm -hmm. is called, when should we transfuse preterm babies and why? Redux, obviously, because this is a post that he had to update multiple times mm -hmm. as these trials came out. <laughs> and um, I think the conclusion to me of all these trials is that we do have a rough idea of we don't need to transfuse for high hemoglobin thresholds. And, and, it, and it is a good standard of practice to use lower thresholds. However, our goal should be to reduce the need for transfusion as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think this discussion, even though we haven't talked about this, really opens the door to using adjuncts of therapy that can allow uh, us to reduce transfusion. I'm thinking of darboipoietin and erythropoietin that could technically when administered, reduce the number of transfusion these babies get exposed to. So these yeah, are- Yeah, and the other thing we don't talk about much, right? It's not studied, well studied, but um, changing our culture even around lab draws, right? So if Absolutely. we take out less blood, then maybe we have to give less blood back. Um, and can can we provide the same level of care with less blood? Absolutely. And and getting uh, lab protocols and policies that use you know less blood for neonatal labs, things like that. Absolutely, sure. absolutely. And so so yeah, so this is the summary of these three trials. They're the big ones. They're the ones yeah. that 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 really discuss this topic with a, a high degree of of a high a large patient population, a high degree of uh, high level of evidence. So um, yeah, this is uh, this is these are the trials. See you guys uh, tomorrow. You're talking to us tomorrow about uh, anemia of prematurity and how does that work? That's exactly right. <laughs> All right. We'll see you tomorrow then. Okay. Bye. bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nicupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at nicupodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.